Hey, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. Thank you for whoever said that. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, we're very glad that you're here. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through 20. Nehemiah 2, 9 through 20. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those Bibles and turn to page 226, 226. And that will get you to Nehemiah 2. 2 is the chapter number, that's the big number. Verses 9 through 20, those are the verse numbers, or those are the smaller numbers in between the sentences there. Nehemiah 2, 9 through 20, on page 226 of those white and blue paperback Bibles at the, at the edge of each bench. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Um, you received, when you walked in this morning, a bulletin. Inside of that bulletin, there were a couple of little, uh, I don't know what you call them, inserts. Uh, and one of those is a connect card. Uh, and if you would take a moment to fill that out, let us know how we can be praying for you. Let us know how we can possibly get a hold of you, potentially get a hold of you, and, and uh, maybe get together for a cup of coffee, just learn more about you. Uh, and, and you can do that by simply filling out the connect card that you received in that bulletin there. And then handing it in to myself or one of the other leaders you've seen up here, or you can give it to the person whoever's behind the, the welcome table out here in the lobby. And we'll make sure to get in touch with you and be in prayer for you uh, if you turn that in. Uh, All right, let's dig into God's Word, Nehemiah 2, 9 through 20. If you want to stand with me, if you're ready, we'll read Nehemiah 2, 9 through 20. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And I went up in the night to the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, God's work in the world never wants for opposition from the world. And that is, of course, true going all the way back to Genesis 3. When the Lord told Adam and Eve, our first parents, that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will always be at conflict with one another until the seed of the woman finally crushes the head of the serpent. And this conflict is what we see taking place here in Nehemiah 2, 1 through, or 9 through 20, rather. Nehemiah arrives in the province beyond the river and then in Jerusalem, and he's immediately met with opposition. And our, our sort of our episode here is kind of bookended with opposition. Uh, up to this point, uh, Nehemiah had been in Susa at the right hand of the, the Persian king, Artaxerxes. He, he's the king's right-hand man. He's his cupbearer. And he's been praying for the city and people of God. And he's been fasting and mourning for the people and city of God. And he's, been, uh, he's had the king's ear concerning, advocating for the city and people of God. But now the setting changes. He leaves Susa. The, the king gives him permission for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, for Nehemiah to be sent, and for the king uh, to even pay for it. And so now Nehemiah arrives in the province beyond the river, the Persian province that Jerusalem was in, and then in the city of Jerusalem. But even right away, right away, right when he arrives in the province, and right when he begins to recruit others to do the work, he meets thorns and thistles. The work is difficult. The opposition is powerful. But what we see here is a lesson for us in perseverance in God's work and relying on God's presence. So let's dig in. Verses 9 and 10 begin this section with Nehemiah recording in his memoirs. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So these verses serve as the sort of transition from Nehemiah's time in Susa to his time in Jerusalem. And they're relatively brief. He's had probably about four months of travel from uh, Susa to the province. Uh, but, but we don't learn about that. We just see his sort of arrival in the province. And he shows up and he gives the governors of the province the king's letters. And these are the letters that Nehemiah had asked the king for in the previous episode. Letters to let him pass through the province until he arrived to Jerusalem. And uh, if the letters weren't enough, he's also accompanied by some armed guards, uh, it it seems. Uh, Apparently, Artaxerxes thought that this could be a risky endeavor for Nehemiah. And so he sent him with some of his army, with some horsemen. And this certainly would would sort of reinforce uh, Nehemiah's credentials to a potentially skeptical group of governors in the province. 
But even with these letters and the army and the horsemen, some are very displeased with Nehemiah's arrival. Uh, they're not happy, he says, that, that some, uh, they're not happy that someone had come to, to seek the welfare of the people and city of God. And then two men are named, Sam Ballot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. And we, we need to remember these names because they come up again. And, and now there's not a lot that we know about these two men. Uh, but we, knew, we do know some things. We know from some documents uh, found from this time period that Sam Ballot was the governor of Samaria at this time. Uh, and, and we'll also see later in Nehemiah 13, 28, that Samballot's daughter married the son of the high priest uh, in, in uh, Jerusalem, and that his children also have distinctly Jewish names. That's of interest to us. Because that, that means that Samballot could possibly be some sort of uh, nominal follower of Yahweh. And uh, based on the name of Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, we might conclude much the same about him. Tobiah is actually a Jewish name. It's a distinctly Jewish name. And it literally means Yahweh is good. It's kind of ironic. He's probably a a Jewish man. And his title as the Ammonite servant is is probably not a reference to his ancestry, but to his chosen sphere in which he had a high office in Ammon. And uh, then also, like Samballot, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, too, he also has children married to those in the Judean community there in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so both of these men have some connections with, with the people of God, and they're probably sort of nominal followers of Yahweh. Yet, both of these men, and possibly others, are truly not happy with Nehemiah's arrival. They, they may not know yet what Nehemiah is doing, but they're not happy that he's come, and they're not happy that he's seeking the welfare of the people of God and the city of God, and they're not happy that King Artaxerxes has given his blessing for Nehemiah to do so. And so they make this known to Nehemiah. Now, this makes the work that Nehemiah was called to do a bit more difficult. Uh, He does not want these men, these opponents, to find out about the plans to rebuild before the people of God in Jerusalem are informed of Nehemiah's plans. Because if they did find out before the people of Jerusalem do, they might be able to get ahead of Nehemiah and and spread sort of discouragement amongst the people about the plans. But it's also not likely that Nehemiah would be able to gain the support of the people of God in Jerusalem until he has surveyed the damage and come up with a plan. So he's kind of put in a hard position. He's put in a hard place here, a, a difficult position. He's in a tricky situation, and this requires that he make his plans and survey the damage of the city in secrecy before anyone finds out. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 16. Notice how uh, Nehemiah emphasizes his secrecy here. He states three times that he went out by night, and then twice how no one knew what he was doing exactly. He hadn't told anyone. He says, so I went to Jerusalem, was there three days, and I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And then again, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. I'll let you guess what the dung gate is. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then again, I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And then he emphasizes his secrecy again and the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. 
So we see Nehemiah take this sort of night ride. He surveys the damage of the walls on the southern side of the city. He kind of loops around the southern side of the city from west to east. And, and things are so decrepit and disheveled and damaged that eventually his night ride becomes a night walk. The rubble that remained on the east side of the city made it impossible for him to continue on his ride. So he gets off of his beast and he, and he walks to see what he needs to see. And I want us to appreciate here that, that the opposition that Nehemiah is facing creates difficulty for him to do the work that God had called him to do. And on top of the already difficulty that he was going to face for rebuilding the wall in the first place because it was utterly destroyed. So, but this doesn't sway him. He perseveres. He makes the necessary sacrifices to continue on God's mission. He knew what God's will was in this situation. He knew that God had promised in his word to take away his people's shame and to gather them from the ends of the earth. And he knew that God had sent him to help him in this work. And so Nehemiah perseveres. And he also knows that this isn't work that he's called to do alone. God's work, God's mission is never just the work of an individual. Christianity is a communal faith. Christianity has a communal mission. Its mission is communal in shape and in nature. It's a communal faith, Christianity is. That's why Nehemiah indicates of his plans here to let the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who are to do the work know about his plans after he made them. And that's what we see in verses 17 to 20. He begins with rousing them by speaking to the sorry state that the, of, the, uh, of the kingdom of God on, on the earth. He says, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? You see, Jerusalem is supposed to be the representation of the kingdom of God on earth. That's, that's why this is so uh, shameful for them. This is why this is so troubling for Nehemiah and the people of God. As Psalm 48.2 says, the, the city of Jerusalem is the city of the great king, the Messiah who was to come. It's, the, it's supposed to be the joy of all the earth. It's the representation of the kingdom of God on earth. It's a representation. It's supposed to be a foretaste of heaven on earth. Jerusalem is the the place of the people and presence of God, and here it lies in shambles, and it's rubble. For those who follow Yahweh, this is utterly intolerable. And this is why Nehemiah is calm. This is why he has made his plans. This is the motivation he uses to recruit others to join him. And he goes on to say, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision, so that God's kingdom may no longer be embarrassed and ashamed. Let us rebuild and make Jerusalem the joy of the earth again. And he goes on to encourage them in this work, telling them of how God had orchestrated things to be able to, uh, to enable them to do the work. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. God's hand had been upon me for good. He's heard my prayer. And he sovereignly orchestrated the decisions of the king so that we could build up the city and people of God again. He's with his people and he's with his people for good. But now in in the final verses of chapter two, we see that this mission, this work, this God's work is, is not without opposition again. This episode, it's bookended with opposition. It began with Sam Ballot and Tobiah being greatly displeased with Nehemiah's coming and them letting him know this. And it ends with these men, plus a third, Geshem, mocking and threatening the people of God. 
And we know that uh, what we know about these three men reveals that they surrounded Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by every side of, with opposition to the work. She's surrounded by those who oppose her here. And Nehemiah speaks of this when he says, but when Sambal the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you, are you rebelling against the king? They're, they're mocking and they're threatening to, to let the king know about this and to, to write letters again to the king to, to stop the work. But Nehemiah's response, he's not to, he doesn't argue. He doesn't mock them in return. He doesn't lash out against them on Facebook or Twitter. He simply informs the opponents of God's presence that God is with them and that God has authorized the work to be done. He says, so I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, of what relevance is this story to us today? You know, of course, God's kingdom is no longer represented on earth by Jerusalem, by a geopolitical city with buildings and walls. Our, our, our mission is not to build temples. Our, our, our mission is not to build walls. It's not really our concern. But God still has a people and a place that represent him on the earth. It's called the church. God's kingdom is represented on earth by the church. We are the manifestation and representation of God's kingdom in the world, us and every other local church across the globe. And we should view ourselves as such. And we should, like Nehemiah and the people of God here, be wholeheartedly committed to building up the people of God so that we may be a faithful representation of the kingdom of God in the world. To put it another way, because we are called to represent the kingdom of God in the world, our mission is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus so that the church will help people see what heaven is like. That means that the way that we order our homes and families and church should be a foretaste of heaven, of heaven on earth. The way that we conduct ourselves at work should show people the character of our God and King. The way we love and relate to one another as a church family should be a faithful representation of the kingdom of God. The way we care for the least and the lost in our city should show the city of Dayton what the city of God is like. And the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to help one another be that faithful representation of the kingdom of God in the world. That's why we do what we're doing here this morning. That's why we do what we do. We're a local church to help one another represent Jesus faithfully in the city of Dayton. We are, along with every other gospel church here in Dayton, we are the city of God in the city of Dayton. And we want to represent the kingdom of God faithfully. And this is what Nehemiah wanted to help the people of God do here. And God was with them for this work. God is present with the people of Israel for this work, and he's present with us to do the same. And so as we understand this text to be informing our life together, As a church in this way, we see some very important lessons for us uh, 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 in our mission as a church. And that's that when facing opposition, God's people must persevere in God's work and rely on his presence. When facing opposition, God's people must persevere in God's work and rely on his presence. You see, the people of God here, as they often do, facing opposition. There's Sambal, the governor of Samaria, to the north. There's Tobiah, a ruler of Ammon, to the northeast. There's Geshem, a powerful official, and Edom and Moab to the southeast. 
The people of God are surrounded by these powerful foes at every side. And these men were eager to maintain their political power. And they feared that whatever was taking place in Jerusalem might jeopardize whatever advantages they had acquired for themselves. But that's what's going on in this specific situation. But, but, but truly, this is just the same old story, different places, different faces. As Derek Thomas says in his commentary on this passage, he says, Satan, in one way or another, always resists God's work. And so we can expect the same. At some point along the way in our endeavor to do God's work, we will also eventually face opposition. It's actually part of the deal. It's actually part of the deal. Jesus once said to his disciples in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did for the false prophets. It's simply part of the deal. It's part of following Jesus. And of course, we must remember that we have brothers and sisters across the globe who face real and life-threatening persecution every day for this very work. I just read last week and. Mission Network News that right now in Pakistan, Christians being persecuted, it's an everyday event. The gospel has been spreading and and bearing fruit more and more in certain areas of Pakistan. And as a result, there's been a, a backlash of beatings and arrests. And in some ways, this is not entirely new. And in 2009, this is almost 10 years now, 10 years ago, uh, two, two Christian, two Pakistani Christians were arrested and have been in prison ever since without any sort of trial for, for, for breaking blasphemy laws by calling Muhammad a false prophet. They've been in prison ever since. The opposition is, is real and intense in Pakistan and many other nations as well. And we would do well, as we reflect on the opposition that the church faces, we would do well to remember these brothers and sisters recognizing that we are bound together with them by a common covenant, by a common covenant in union with Christ. But in another way, another way is not unlike what Nehemiah and the people of God face here. We might experience some form of opposition. We're not persecuted. We don't face the kind of opposition that Christians in Pakistan and other nations might face. But there's, there's a good chance that you've experienced people, possibly family or friends or coworkers, who have made fun of you or mocked you for following Jesus Try to discourage you from helping others follow Jesus. You know, the, the opposition later in Nehemiah intensifies, but it's still pretty mild here. And many of us have faced similar sorts of mild opposition. And you, need, you, you know, we, we actually see somewhat of a warning in this text about where this kind of opposition comes from sometimes. I've already noted that Sam Ballot and Tobiah had some sort of close connections to the church here in Jerusalem, and they were, they were likely nominal followers of Yahweh. But here they stand as opponents to the work and to the mission of God. Here they stand staunchly opposed to God's mission. And really, it, and, and one of the things I've noticed in, in reading church history for the last 2,000 years, some of the most formidable opponents to the Christian faith have been those who call themselves Christians. And this is still true today. I was just having a chat with a couple of friends of mine who are pastors in the area the other day. And they're both a part of the same denomination and they're, they're faithful followers of Christ. They love Jesus. They preach the Bible. 
But really, they're, they're in the minority in their denomination here in the Dayton area and also nationally. Uh, many in their, denom- in their denomination have, have abandoned the authority of the Bible. Many of them don't believe in the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Many don't believe in the resurrection. Many of them have, have uh, denied or, or abandoned uh, Christian social and sexual ethics. And they're pressuring these pastors to abandon these beliefs or to abandon the congregations under their care. And you may face similar sorts of situations in your life. Loved ones, friends, family, maybe even those who identify as followers of Jesus, pressuring you, discouraging you from following Jesus, discouraging you from from helping others to do the same. And even if you haven't up to this point in your life, if you're truly following Jesus and helping others to do the same, you most certainly will. It will come eventually. And when we face opposition like this, we would do well to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against these individuals. You know, the devil is raging, and he's using many earthly means and human obstacles to oppose the mission of God in the earth. And because this is true, Nehemiah's response is exemplary. He doesn't lash out against them on Facebook or Twitter. He doesn't throw a fit like a child and and write letters to Artaxerxes, protest outside their offices, asking for their removal and their governing positions. No, he simply informs them of God's presence and blessing on this work. And he perseveres. Which brings us to our next lesson we learn here. And that's a lesson in persevering in God's work. When we face opposition for following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus, we must persevere in God's work. Nehemiah persevered here in Nehemiah 2. He faced the sort of initial opposition in verses 9 and 10, and it complicated his plans, but he persevered. And it's not just when he faced opposition, but also when he began to see the difficulty that laid ahead after surveying the wall, he persevered. I mean, that, that wall was complete rubble in some parts. Some parts of it had been utterly demolished, and they had their work cut out for them. And the same is true for us. I mean, like, like we've already stated, we're not rebuilding walls or temples, but, but we've got a much more difficult mission. Our mission is to follow Jesus and help others to do the same. We not only have to worry then about, about uh, outside opposition for this mission, but internal opposition as well. We carry with us our sinful nature, our flesh, and it opposes us. This world opposes us. Satan opposes us. And he opposes this much more than he does the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. But it's here that we must remember that there's a reason that the symbol for Christianity is a cross, not a couch, not a mattress. The Christian life isn't supposed to be comfortable. It's not supposed to be easy. And when it's easy... When it's not easy, those who are truly God's people are called to persevere. You know, I I get so tired of seeing Christians in America wringing their hands and thinking we're doomed because the numbers of church attendance are going down. You know, it's obvious that the Christian faith doesn't have the place of respect that it once held in the West. It's, It's obvious that there's a growing number of people 
who despise or dismiss or just don't care at all about the Christian faith. And so, of course, those who consider themselves Christians because it added to their social credibility and respectability are going to begin to leave the church. And I'm not convinced that that's entirely a bad thing. But to you, I would say, persevere in following Jesus. Persevere in helping others follow Jesus. It may not add to your credibility in the sight of others. It may not add to your respectability. But we're not called to Jesus, to call to follow Jesus only when it makes good American sense to do so. We're not called to wring our hands and wonder, why, why is this happening to us? This must be the Democrats' fault. We need to fight for our privileged position in American society again. No, that is a distraction. That's sinful. That's working according to the world's power dynamics, not according to the cross. We're called to pick up our crosses. We're called to deny ourselves. We're called to crucify ourselves. We're called to persevere in following Jesus and helping others do the same. To persevere in the face of opposition for doing so. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a part of God's mission and work in the world. And here's the good news. God is with us precisely for that. Nehemiah encourages the people of God in this way when calling them to the work. He tells them of God's promised approval and help in the task before them. The plan to rebuild the wall was not merely Nehemiah's or, or the people's idea that, or plan. It was God who put it into Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah assured the people that this was the case when he told them in verse 18 how God's hand had been on him for good and of how he sovereignly directed the decision-making of the king, Artaxerxes, to have the wall rebuilt. Artaxerxes, his written and documented support for the work signified to the people that God's hand was upon them, that this work had his blessing, and that he was present with them for the work. God is in this work. And they could be certain of this no matter what threats, no matter what difficulty, no matter what opposition they faced while doing it. And friends, we are recipients of the same promise. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when the resurrected Christ commissioned his church for the mission of making disciples of all nations, for the mission of following Jesus and helping others to do the same, he promised, and I quote, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. That's why we call him our Emmanuel, which means God with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's with us always until the end of the age. No matter what difficulty or opposition we face in in our mission, he is with us. We have his blessing and his presence. That's why the church perseveres and why she has done so for the last 2,000 years. You know, the church has faced kings and entire nations that oppose her. And she has outlasted them all. Many have faced the scorn and mocking and jeering of those who who claim to be fellow followers of Christ. And you know, some have faced and still face severe persecution and opposition. Christians have been burned alive and been fed to wild animals. And some have been forced in front of firing squads. Some have faced arrests and beatings and imprisonments. And many across the globe still face this today. But you know, I, I, I came across this quote yesterday from the French reformer Theodore Beza. 
who was in, very persecuted. The, the, the French reformers during the Reformation were very persecuted. And he said this, he said, it belongs to the church of God to suffer blows, not to strike them. But the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Why is that? Because Christ is with her. Christ is with us. That's why we sing so often the words of Martin Luther in his hymn, Though this world with devils filled may threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. We literally can't lose. Even if we lose, we can't lose. Even if Veritas closes down tomorrow, Christ's church, her mission, her cause, her work of restoration in the world cannot die. And in essence, that's what what Nehemiah is telling God's people. That's what caused the response in verse 18. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, the promise of Christ's presence with us beckons us to be bold and to take risks in the same way. It it, it even calls us to be seemingly reckless in the eyes of the world in doing so. Reckless in the way that we sacrifice to love and serve one another. Taking risks in the way that we sacrificially love and serve the least and the lost in our city. Reckless in the way that we sacrificially love and serve the coming generations, our children. And we can persevere no matter what difficulties or opposition lay before us because Christ is with us and he always will be. The good hand of our God was upon Nehemiah and the people of God. And the good hand of our God is upon us today. Therefore, when we face opposition, we must persevere in God's work and rely on his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we are utterly dependent on your presence with us. And that's why we so cherish this meal that is before us now and that we are about to partake in. That signifies to us and is even a a tangible experience of the fact that you are with us, that you are in us, and that we have an everlasting communion with you And so, Lord, we pray that now, as we partake of the elements, we pray, as we are about to celebrate this meal, that you would strengthen us with your presence, strengthen us with these representations of the body and blood of Christ, to be the broken body of Jesus in the world, to be a people who sacrificially love and serve in our homes, in our places of employment, in our church, in our city. And Lord, we we believe that this meal is as practical as that, that it informs and empowers the way that we serve in the world. So help us to be mindful of that as we come forward. Lord, help us, strengthen us, reinvigorate us, refresh us in your presence. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments of silent reflection before coming forward to partake of the supper.